Hello, I'm Marcus Rilton, and this is the Scots Care Podcast. Scots Care is the only charity dedicated to helping disadvantaged Scots in London through a range of support, including mental health therapy, financial grants, advocacy, sheltered housing for older Scots, job coaching, social events, befriending, and support for children and families. The charity has been running for 400 years to help break the cycle of poverty experienced by some Scots in London. In this series of the Scots Care podcast, I'll be chatting to celebrities and supporters of the charity that have forged a life often away from Scotland and about the ups and downs that can bring. On the podcast today is best-selling crime author Alice Clark Platts. Before Alice turned to writing, she was a human rights lawyer dealing with cases all over the world. As well as this, we chatted about growing up in London with media parents and what attracted her to the law. She spoke about expat life, having lived for over 10 years in Singapore. And most importantly, we talked about her books, three D.I. Erica Martin novels, the superb but harrowing Flower Girls that really made her name, and her current novel, The Cove. Scots Care. For Scots in London in need of support, financial, practical or emotional help. Hi Alice. Hello. Thank you for doing the Scots Care podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Now, you've got Scottish lineage on your father's side, but you're very much a Londoner because you grew up in Balham. Do you still think of yourself as a Londoner after all these years? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. London's my city. But um, yeah, no, my, my dad is a Mackay, so that's where the Scottish part of me comes in. I was thinking about this because I was thinking growing up in Balham and I was 28 when I moved to London, but you grew up in a city of 8 million people. And I kind of wonder if it shapes you as a person, you know, they say people that live in islands or people that live by the sea are different. And I, when I came to London, I found it quite terrifying because Glasgow's big, but it's not, it's not like London. You know, I found the crowds terrifying. I found the tube map terrifying and what i appreciate about london now is this kind of multicultural boiling point pot of people which i love but when i first got here that terrified me whereas you grew up with that from day one and probably went to school amongst all that hustle and bustle yeah and i mean i know all of them all eight million of them they're all very <laughs> very good friends no um well i mean i guess it's it's kind of you know it's just what you're used to isn't it so i mean from the age of 11 i was making my way across London, jumping on tubes and buses. And I've now got an 11 year old myself and I, um, she seems incredibly young <laughs> to me. So I kind of, I, you know, I do wonder about that sometimes, but I mean, it was just totally normal to me and London, the whole city really became my stomping ground. And so I was just very used to the tube map and the bus routes and trains. And, you know, I had my travel card and I was just kind of like, running around town really um so I loved it I loved the fact that that of just having that freedom of kind of like you know I mean we didn't have mobile phones in those days so I I don't know what my mother was thinking really but um (laughs) you know we'd just sort of leave the house and and then I'd see her in the evening you know after school we'd go off to the parks and go to McDonald's or whatever and um yeah it was just great it was really good fun I think it's changed so much and just I mean you, I, I, I've got a ten-year-old Rafe. You've got a eleven-year-year-old, and I was talking to Rafe the other day, and he, I said to him, I used to, I used to go to school on my own, and he, he said, 
well, what age were you? And I said, well, I was I was younger than you. And he said, oh, did you live really near the school? And I said, oh. no, no, I didn't. You know, it, it, did you have to cross any roads? I said, yeah, I, I, I crossed yeah. roads. And, and I was thinking, you know, this, I'm a bit older than you, but I'm not ancient. And it did seem to be a different time. And when we went out, like you said, running about after school, I would say to my mum and dad, when I was about 10, what time do I have to be back? And they said, by the time the streetlights come on. And that's how yeah. I knew I had to be back in the house. And whereas now, even Noah, who's going to be 14 this year, he he he's out and about today because his teachers are on strike. And it yes. terrifies me, him running about on his own on bikes. I just I just get very scared for them. No, I know. I mean, I remember like walking down my road to go to the to catch the train to go to school and there'd be you know like a flasher at the end of my road and I mean that that, I mean, that one that kind of like happened quite a lot I mean and you just sort of like go oh there's the flasher and on you'd go you know <laughs> oh my Lord. yeah I mean like it just you just sort of like you know just got on with it really I don't you know I don't remember being overly traumatized by it I don't know. It was just a different time. I don't think think we had flashers in Glasgow when I was 10. It's too cold. It's too cold up there, I think. (laughs) There'd be too much shrinkage. That's what it was. Nothing visible. (laughs) Right, stop it. (laughs) Now, your mother's mother's an actor. Your father is a writer, is a writer. I mean, did you feel as if at that point you were growing up in a very creative household? No, I mean, again, I think it's kind of just what you're used to, isn't it? Um, I mean, I suppose I did in comparison with with what my friends at school were doing. Like, I I knew that my parents, well, they didn't have steady incomes, I suppose, was the the sort of difference. So, you know, I was very aware that when my mum got a job, you know, she was she was acting then she would often be going away for a period of time because she would be in a play you know in rep somewhere um and you know so the money would kind of like come in in kind of trips and drabs so it wasn't you know and she wasn't going out to the office every day as as my friends were but um no I didn't sort of it wasn't that I felt you know we weren't sort of like prancing around the house quoting Shakespeare at each other it was just sort of you know it was just normal really you mentioned you said your dad's a Mackay. Your dad's Malcolm Mackay. Were you aware, as you were growing up, were you aware that he was quite successful? You know, he, you know, novels, radio, television, theatre. He's kind of done, you know, the, the media gamut. Were you aware of his success as you were growing up, or was he hands on, or, or was he more kind of locked in a study? Yes. No. There was definitely there was a time where he became really successful, where he got got a lot of television work and um he was uh yeah he was making stuff for tv and it was all doing very well and yeah there was there was definitely a, a sort of period of great success for him so that was very exciting and he was sort of um and I mean he wrote a play called Airbase um which was first in the theatre and then it was made in, in uh, as a BBC drama and it was about American um, fighter pilots um, on a base in the UK and I think Mary Whitehouse complained about it and questions were asked in Parliament and stuff about it because they were, he wrote this play about them all taking drugs and things to get, you know, to have the courage to fly these planes and um, so that was all quite funny like he went on BBC Breakfast and stuff and it was all quite glamorous and he met <laughs> Selena Scott <laughs> I oh, seem no. to remember, yeah 
so that was all quite fun but um I don't think I ever thought at that point you know that's something that I'm gonna get involved in it was just sort of happening that's interesting because uh, kind of your next stage of of your of your life and your career you you didn't and reading about you your kind of your story feels a bit like the, the circus kid who who ran away from the circus to become an accountant because you grew up yeah. in a house you grew up in a house of artists and and creators and and you became a lawyer you know and I wondered if your mum and dad went oh no Alice what are you doing with your life do something less secure yeah but uh, no I think I mean I think there was that I mean it was always I think the the comparison was always that I was a bit like Safi with um uh what's her name Adina in Absolutely Fabulous and I was I lived with my mum you know she brought me up on her own um and so she was a little bit like that kind of ab fab character. I mean, not as awful as, as Jennifer Saunders, obviously, but I was always quite straight, you know, kind of making sure that everything was tidy and sorted and, you know, like getting everything ready. Um, and I think just sort of growing up when I went, to, I went to Durham University and I, I did social sciences, I did politics, I did philosophy, anthropology, always loved English I mean I always read loads I mean I loved loved going to the theatre and all that kind of stuff but I think I was just really keen to get involved in kind of politics really and sort of NGO work I think that was kind of where I just sort of I think I'd seen as I say this kind of like sporadic income stream coming into our house and I'd seen how sort of there was you know that insecurity really and I think I'd wanted to not have that. I think I was quite keen to have like a steady job. And I, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't have that burning ambition to be on the stage, to be a performer. And so I wanted to get into something that was just going to be a bit more kind of secure, I think. Secure, but heavyweight as well, because I was reading that you, when you became a human rights lawyer, one of your early cases was part of the team of the U the UN Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda prosecuting those responsible for Rwandan genocide. I mean that must have been a phenomenal insight to pure evil at a very early stage of your career. Yeah, well that was I went out to Tanzania to Arusha um to work uh yeah for, for the UN over there just for a few months that was um I just started work for the UK government actually um uh, as a litigator um, over here and then I got a, a, a posting over there um, as a separate thing but um, I, I mean I was only really I was like a little baby lawyer at that stage so it wasn't like I was you know I was no Amal Cloody <laughs> but um, it was a fantastic experience and it was um, yeah it was really really interesting and I mean that was that was where my interest was was the the these kind of, yeah it was quite heavyweight and I was really interested in the work that I was doing for the government and I was you know I did this masters in human rights law and I like that was where I was really I, I loved it I loved all of that work um, but it obviously made you want to go forward rather than seeing uh, you know as you said as a baby lawyer as a novice going in and, and thinking this is horrible this 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 evil is awful I don't want to be part of this I. You know, it wasn't emotionally overwhelming for you at that point. No, in fact, I remember um, Fergal Keane, the journalist, going in when when I was in Arusha. You know, he was giving evidence at the tribunal, and he was very upset because he'd been there during the genocide, and he was 
um, you know, he was having to testify and he was like, you know, really kind of psyching himself to go up. <laughs> I found him in the corridor right before he was about to go in. And I just started fangirling over him going like, oh, Fergal Keel, I think you're amazing. <laughs> like, can I just say how much I love your books? And I just like, and he was just like, could you just go away, please? I'm trying oh, well. to like, <laughs> so no, I was actually wasn't overwhelmed by it at all. I was, I just found it all very interesting and um, just uh, thought it was a great experience, really. Did yeah. you always did you always feel on the side of right? Did you always feel on the side of justice? Or did you ever feel compromised? Or maybe, maybe the question is that I always find with writing and life, there's so much nuance, but the law tends to be rather black and white, doesn't it? Well, it's a really good question. I mean, I was actually working for the judges, so I was sort of listening to both sides and was kind of, you know, helping the judges kind of reach their decisions. Um, I had friends of mine that were working on the defence team and I think they had a very interesting time of it. Um, but often what I was doing was transcribing witness statements. And I did, I remember doing this job so well in in that little, in my little office in Arusha, in these dusty African roads and um, and transcribing these like verbal testimonies that have been given I, d I remember thinking to myself then, gosh, it's so easy for me to just twist this in the way that I write them down because of the way that I heard it. I heard the way they had given the evidence. Hmm. But the way that I write it, somebody reading it, I can make this theme one way or another. And I think at that it was then it really struck me how important it is to you know for, for me as the judge's assistant was to be very neutral but also there's the power of the written word really if you're thinking about a job change scots care can help we offer grants for scots in london retraining for a new career or study for the qualifications they need and at this point you were still UK based and it wasn't until am I right in thinking it wasn't until you moved to Singapore you relocated to Singapore with your husband for a job mm. change and was it at this point you said now did you give up law or were you still practicing law or was it at this point you said this is this is when I could have a go at being a full-time writer um yeah so we moved my husband got a secondment for two years basically to Singapore just as I was pregnant with my youngest um and so I thought great you know go and have a baby there and have some maternity leave and just essentially take a bit of a career break and then um so I ended up teaching law in Singapore at the university and doing a bit of kind of voluntary work at a local women's rights NGO over there and then the two years passed and I was supposed to come back. We were all supposed to come back. And then it just ended up, you know, my husband got taken on by another firm. And at this point I had actually started writing just for my own enjoyment. And I'd started writing a, a novel just to see if I could. And that ended up, you know, finding an agent, finding a publisher. And then, then that's just sort of how it came about. It wasn't really that I ever sat down and said, do you know what? I'm going to give up the law and I'm going to now become a career novelist. It was, um, it just sort of happened. When you did that, when you, I just, the thing that I, I wanted to ask you is when you sat down and you, you decided I'm going to write a book, 
Was it because of your law background that you thought, I'm going to write a crime fiction book? Or did you ever think, I might write a chiclet book or I might write a sci-fi book? Or was, was there always one direction you were going in? Yes, crime fiction, because I wanted to write something that... Um, I that I read that I loved and it was kind of like a challenge to myself that I wanted to see if I could do it because I'd always read Agatha Christie or Patricia Cornwell or you know things like that and so I thought to myself you know how how easy is it how hard is it you know could I do it and so um I, I basically just I I was coming I was sitting on a on the tube or the MRT as they call it in Singapore and coming home from a concert actually one night and I wrote the first paragraph of my first book Bitter Fruits and that that first paragraph has always stayed the same and um it just kind of went on from there so your first three books Bitter Fruits to die for and The Taken all have the same lead character DI Erica Martin Right. Yes. Now, I wondered about this because do you think it's harder to write a female lead than it is to write a male lead? And my thoughts were because a male lead, like especially in crime fiction, when you think of somebody like Rebus, you know, they, they can be more downtrodden. They can, they can be more depressed. They can be more alcoholic. And I just I wonder if that just wouldn't be tolerated in a female lead character. Oh, I don't know. I mean, Martin, my character is pretty grumpy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she's not an alcoholic, although she does like a whiskey. Um, I, it never occurred to me to write a man, to be honest with you. Although I did deliberately call her D.I. Martin, which I got into lots of trouble about. Um, people had very strong opinions about that. Well, because it's a I wanted name, to, or... yeah, because the man's name, I wanted her to have, um, I wanted it to be sort of gender neutral name. I didn't really, I didn't really want you to know whether she was a man or a woman. I didn't see that it was important. Yeah. Do you do you think crime fiction is still too dominated by men, or do you like you know I read a lot online about trying to get more parity for female crime fiction readers. Look, I think if you're writing, if you're writing a book, you've just got to have an affinity with your character. And I mean, I I just know as a writer, you will just start writing somebody, and they'll, you know, you can't help who they turn out to be. You know, I think I think after you, those three books, you, you wrote a book called The Flower Girls, which was, I don't know what the the phrase would be. I'm not going to say it's a step up because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't better than your other books. So your other books weren't as good as this, but it was a different take because it, it dealt with the murder of a child so it was certainly a lot more emotionally hard hitting and oh. I kind of wondered what, what was this something that you were drawn to did you think this was was just a fascinating subject because a lot of it's about culpability about can a child be held responsible for killing another child so I wondered where where was the kernel of that idea for you well it really went back to back to my kind of school days when I was stomping around London um when I must have been about 15 and uh sort of mid 90s and it was the murder of Jamie Bulger um and the uh his his murderers um Robert Thompson and John Venables and and I was a teenager when that happened and as with most of the country who will remember it you know I was deeply shocked by it 
and it had always stayed with me and then when I when I got into law and I'm not a criminal lawyer but um I was a judicial review lawyer and the and judicial review is where judges basically review decisions of public law um bodies so and one of those is are the parole board and um so somebody like Thompson and Venables you know when they came up for parole you know that they would have been given you know that that can be reviewed um by a judge if it's if it's appealed anyway i got really interested in the fact that these boys were considered at 10 years old they were they were tried as adults um for for Jamie Bolger's murder and that they were released when they were 18 and you know and i didn't want to i didn't want to talk about that crime in particular but it just really struck me that that you know when do we decide one that a child can be tried as an adult mm. and two when when do you ever kind of like when can you ever be forgiven for that like when have you served your time you know can you ever be or is, or is it never enough you know do you have to be locked up forever for something as kind of abhorrent as that crime was so it wasn't that I wanted to really come down on the side of any of those arguments but I wanted to just kind of I just found them really interesting as debates and I just wanted to kind of write about them so um so that was the those were the, the things that I found interesting so I created a novel yeah. that kind of dealt with those issues it's, it's interesting you talk about forgiveness there because I think there's probably forgiveness on two levels there's forgiveness in the eyes of the law if it is forgiveness or you served your time, but there's also forgiveness in the eyes of society and probably society would never forgive for, for the crime of killing a child, especially nowadays where things tend to get hyped up a lot more through social media. Exactly. And so the characters that I have in the book, you know, I do have a family member and I do have, you know, I have, I have everybody across the board, you know, like the, all of those points of view are, are represented. So then it's just, it's you know it's kind of the readers just gonna see what they think about it really is that when you write something like this is it difficult for you as a mum of two girls to to emotionally detach from it at the end of the day and when you shut the laptop lid and you're going to make the tea for them does that does it linger with you no I think I'm quite good at kind of um compartmentalizing these things um you know ultimately I'm writing fiction and I'm not writing about my children and no I'm quite good at kind of putting that to one side and you know I am telling a story and it is ultimately a story so it's it you know and it and it is when when you learn the craft of writing a novel you kind of you do you know you know about the mechanics of it as well so it you know it's not I'm not fooling myself <laughs> no. you know like i i know what i'm doing so it's kind of no i can do that did you know scots care can help second and even third generation scots break the cycle of deprivation key services include financial grants mental health support social events for the scots community and more flower girls was a big success for you there's loads of advertising around it it was translated into multiple languages the audiobook was read by Emilia Fox, the actress in Silent Witness. And yeah. I, was, I, I was wondering if, even though at this point this was your fourth book, did you have a I've arrived moment? Did you feel as if, okay, this is a this is a career step up? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, it was very exciting, all that. And like, you know, seeing posters on the tube and there was a big thing in Waterloo Station. And yeah, it was was really good fun. But also, I just, I think I felt like, you know, I knew what I was doing a bit more, you know, as a writer, which is good in itself. You know, I think you feel like you, you kind of, you maybe lose that imposter syndrome a little bit and you, you know, you feel a bit more kind of valid. <laughs> or validated well do you have any self-doubt now as a writer or when you're writing do you think oh that's that's good oh no no <laughs> don't ever think that you don't know <laughs> you think that's rubbish most of the time um like well, do you know what i was yeah. wondering i was wondering how somebody who like you now five books in what what is your edit process like when you're working with your publisher uh, are they hard on you? Do they? I, I read an interview with you where you were talking about in the early books that you would lose whole storylines to editors and they would take stuff out. I mean, is is that difficult not to take that personally? Because that's probably weeks or months of your life. Yeah, but you can't take it personally. I mean, like you know, you're all working to the same end, which is to make the book better. So, I mean, unless you really, really disagree with something. Um, you have to kind of you know sort of take a view on it I mean my my hardest editor has always been my agent who I love very dearly um Ariella but she she is the um she's harsh (laughs) she'll tell you what something works or something doesn't work yes 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 and, and then you... she'll then she'll say in a very lovely tone of voice, but I think we've really taken a step back here. Oh really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then I have to go and have a large glass of wine, and then remind myself that you know that you know she is just doing it for the good of me. I've spoken to a couple of uh, writers, Christopher Brookmeyer and Amy McCulloch, and I can't, it was somebody like that who said to me, they no longer read their own reviews because they they just don't want to know. Do you read your reviews? Yeah, I don't mind. If somebody says this is not so good or I didn't enjoy that, are you okay with that? You can, you can, to use your word, compartmentalise that one? Yes. I mean, there's no accounting for taste, is there? <laughs> no, I suppose. Are you disciplined? Are you, are you, do you sit down every day and you go, this is, I'm going to do X amount of words? I just, I certainly lost my discipline. I mean, I, I used to work at ITN years ago and I used to, I used to work hard, really hard. I would write loads of interviews a day and, you know, and then go to the pub and then come back in and write loads more interviews. And nowadays I find it hard to do six or seven questions for an interview before I go, oh, I'll just, <laughs> I'll just empty the dishwasher or have a cup of tea. Are you able to sit there and, and do it? I am. I know what you mean, though. There's, the, you know, I, I do get quite persuaded by, you know, watching Happy Valley reruns or whatever. Um, so it is, you know, I am, but I, I am, I have to be because if I don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. So it's quite an isolated existence. I, you know, you said very isolated. Where, uh, you said Christmas parties are a bit lonely when you're a writer because it's basically like you in your own kitchen with a glass of wine. Yeah, and the Spotify playlist that I've made myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah. I know. But it, yeah, I mean, the editing process, for, and for me, you know, like at the moment I'm doing an ed- edit of a first draft. The first draft I find is is the best bit because that's just like if I could get a thousand words done a day, I then I'm happy and I'm just making stuff up and it doesn't even necessarily have to make that much sense. 
So there's a first draft for you. What kind of percentage finished of the final book would you say your first draft is? Do you just get through to 100,000 words and then then start to refine the product? 100,000, you're lucky. be more like 70,000. And then, yeah, and then I'd do another another draft myself of that, which wouldn't wouldn't take too long. And then I would send it to either editor or agent, depending on what's going on and then I'd get to where I am now which is a really substantive edit um based on their notes which you know will be quite heavy weather yeah mm. just, that, that's the bit that I, I think must be difficult because you're going back over it and going back over it that's the point you really have to knuckle down I suppose to get to get to your final product yeah and you, you have to cut a lot you know let's talk about the cove which is the book that you have out at the moment and this is set on a tropical island and two families who don't really know each other all that well decide to go on holiday together have you ever done that i can't imagine doing that because i'm relatively i'm not very social at the at the best of times and when i go on holiday <laughs> i'm normally that's why i go on holiday because i'm so burned out that i just want to i want to sit behind a newspaper and and no nobody to to speak to me so i can't imagine going on holiday with another family that would kill me well this is this stems from living in singapore for um, 10 years as i did and when you've got young children going on holiday with another family who also have young children is quite a good thing to do because there's safety in numbers <laughs> mm. and the kids can kind of entertain each other, which leaves you a bit of time to lie on a sunbed and drink gin tonic. So, um, yeah, we did do that quite a lot. I mean, it's not that you don't know this other family at all. It's just that you perhaps, you know, you've not been on holiday with them and you perhaps don't know everything about them. And that's, that's very typical of expat life that you, you know, you kind of present this sort of facade to the world but you have you've never been to their home back in the UK you know like you don't know really where they've come from so yeah that that's quite a familiar scenario I like the setting because it was a tropical island setting I think would you ever write anything or would you ever start a story with the idea that it has to be more than a book like would you does it always just exist on the page for you or would you ever think or do you know what, I'd like to sell this as a screenplay or I'd like to sell this as a film or a TV series, so therefore I'm going to set it here. Do you do you ever think like that? Or I mean, I would love to sell any of my books as a film or screenplay or television series if anyone would like to <laughs> take them up as that. Um, but no, I can't say I, I can't say I'm that sort of like, devious about it and that i think oh this will make a you know no but yeah. this is all going yeah. to sit on an oil rig and there's a killer on the loose yeah 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 that. no i have that one if you want thank you <laughs> <laughs> it's strange you watched uh you you said reruns of happy valley i think happy valley is great i think oh, it's brilliant is isn't fantastic. it so I good think the writing yeah. is super tight and i think the acting so good is great do you like watching that kind of stuff or is it too much of a busman's holiday no i love it i love it and in fact um she sally wainwright wrote a fantastic police series i don't know if you've seen called scott and bailey um yes. have yeah. you seen that it's so two, good two female leads isn't it yes yeah, yeah. i really enjoy that i never realized that was the same person yeah 
can you tell us about the new book, the one that you're editing now? Can you give us a, a, a general idea of what that's going to be about? This one actually has got a good tagline, if anyone wants to make a film of it. It's called, it, it's not called, it's, it's um, sort of Downton Abbey meets Succession. Oh, so is it set in the past? <laughs> is it a historical? Oh, no, it's not. All it right, just, okay. what that means is it's just like in sort of like British country house, but it's kind of like really rich. And then there's lots of murders that take place in it. I like this. And it's all to do with money. When will this be out? When have you got to deliver this? Are you under under the under pressure to deliver this now? No, I'm just not really. Um the paperback of the cove comes out in April and so I'll be hoping to get it done before then. And and how long does it take from that kind of delivery of you hope to get it done to that when the hardback of uh downtown and succession comes out (laughs) (laughs) well it's kind of really depends on marketing calendars and you know who else has got books coming out and things like that so i don't know it's quite hard to predict really so the paperback of the cove is out in april alice thank you for joining me on the scots care podcast it's been it's been lovely to talk uh books and flashers and (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for having me marcus it's been really fun Bye-bye. Bye. Scots Care, the charity helping to break the cycle of poverty some Scots find in London. 